What is the digital economy? What does digital mean? Strategic Artificial intelligence. How far can the digital economy go? Welcome back to the Digital Week. I'm Oliver Bolton, designer the sister the chair in digital economy, and today we are talking to Jocko Willink. Jocko joins Mark Wolkowitz and myself for a discussion about leadership and the digital economy. Jocko is a former U.S. Navy SEAL commander who spent 20 years in the U.S. military, during which time he fought in the Battle of Ramadi, leading a special forces SEAL team through some of the most intense fighting throughout the war in Iraq. In 2015, he co-wrote the book Extreme Ownership, in which he details how his experiences with the SEAL teams led him to begin examining the nature of leadership, with a particular focus on responsibility and accountability. Since leaving the military, Jocko has worked with various companies teaching leaders across the globe, and was recently recruited by MIT to help run its bootcamp in innovation and entrepreneurship. The bootcamp has a particular focus on developing leaders in the digital economy and technology sectors, and is currently running here in Brisbane at QUT. It was great to have Jocko in the studio to talk with us about his experiences and to share some of his knowledge. And now here is the Digital Week. We're here with Mark Walkowitz, Chair in Digital Economy at QUT, and today we're honoured to have Jocko Willink with us. Jocko, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So Jocko, you're in Brisbane to lead the MIT Innovation and Entrepreneurship Bootcamp here at QUT. Can you tell us a bit about how you became involved with the bootcamp and what it's all about? Well, actually, just one of the people that runs the, the bootcamp, a guy by the name of Erdine, great guy, and he had started looking at sort of alternative people to bring in that had a reputation of being able to talk about leadership because where they find what they find with these entrepreneurs, these especially these young technical entrepreneurs that are trying to move into the tech space primarily and although this boot camp is more focused on environmentalism and sustainability, but but regardless, you've got people that have technical knowledge and they form a company and that's great, but they don't really have the leadership skills. And, and if you don't have leadership skills and you're trying to run a business, things aren't going to work out well. So they realized that gap in, in the system. And as he looked around for someone to help them teach actual leadership, he came across me through the books and through my podcast and ended up bringing me out to speak at MIT and, and do some, some work out there and then invited me to come and help out with this. So that's how I ended up here in, at QUT. Cool. Very cool. So what do you see as the relationship between entrepreneurship and leadership? You just spoke a bit about it, but are they intrinsically sort of linked or are there instances in which you can imagine entrepreneurs not necessarily needing to be leaders? Uh, no, actually, I can't imagine an entrepreneur not be, needing to be a leader. Now, you can have a person that forms a company that's maybe not a great leader, and maybe they bring a person in that that has leadership capabilities, or they learn to lead over time. But between those two, I mean, if you're going to run a business, if you're going to run a company, if you're going to have people working for you, you're going to need some leadership skills, and, and that's all there is to it. True. Merrick, you often talk about entrepreneurs and leaders, uh, especially those in large organizations, becoming too complacent or too comfortable. What's wrong with that? Yeah, so uh, we meet with a lot of leaders, especially the Australian organizations that we work with, and many of them actually admit it and they recognize it in themselves that, that after many years of being very successful as entrepreneurs, they, they almost switch to a, you know, a cruise control, right? They're cruising. Uh, and uh, for a while it might be good, but, but many of them, and these are the good ones, are starting to recognize that there are some challenges um, appearing ahead of them, uh, and they need to stop being complacent. Those ones, they're good, right? But there are those other entrepreneurs or, or leaders who 
we call them uh, we we we, use, we we say that they sleep very well at night that uh, you know that, that they always smile they you know they sleep through the night and that's mostly because they don't know what's around the corner right sometimes we use that academic language and and say that we're talking about unconscious incompetence or basically i don't know what i don't know right so this is a problem with uh, with uh, many leaders of large successful organizations that we that we've seen and the things that we do at the Cherry Digital Economy are, are all about making sure that they do become aware of the environment and they do understand what are challenges, but also, importantly, opportunities ahead of them. Sure. Is that something you've seen, Jocko? Well, certainly, as people are successful and their business grows, the reason that their business is growing is because they're successful. And what that can do is that can sort of feed your ego and you start to think, well, I, pretty much everything I do turns to gold. Mm. And so I don't really need to look forward. I, and they, that becomes complacency. And sure enough, mm. when you get complacent, you're no longer preparing as much. You're no longer training as hard. You're no, no longer pushing yourself or your team as hard as you would have in the past. Mm. And when you stop doing that in this day and age, Someone else is pushing their team hard. Someone else is grinding. Someone else is working very hard to take what you've got. So if you get complacent, you're going to give it to them in the long run. Mm. True. So a lot of uh, leaders in the technology sector, uh, some are more entrepreneurial, some are more technical or in their expertise. How do you see the dynamic in leadership playing out in an industry where leaders are often not the most technically capable individuals? Yeah, well, different people have different skill sets. And a good team will come together and willfully capitalize on what everyone is, what everyone's individual skill sets are. So they'll look at the leader and say, you know what, you have a better a better a better grip or a better grasp on getting control of the team getting the team to move in the right direction hey i'm a technical person over here and what i can do is really produce a good product and we've got a, a marketing person over here and what they can really do is is get it out there and sell it so if you've got a team that accepts that that each individual accepts that they have strengths and weaknesses and they decide to instead of try and fight each other. Instead, they just try and complement each other and work together to form the best possible team they can and take advantage of those strengths. That's where you end up with a winning team. Sure. Uh, Mark, what have you seen in this space? Is there any recent research that, that shows some of this? Yeah, so we looked at uh, digital businesses, right? Think your, your Facebooks, your, your Googles, and so on. And, and that's, a, that's an interesting area because many of those businesses started as, as very, very small teams. And, and uh, the leadership traits that were required to get started were completely different from the leadership skills that are required to keep those companies successful completely different. Now, uh, you know, it might be an interesting conversation with, jo with you, Jaco, about it. Um, you know, there are probably two ways of looking at it. You could look at an individual and think about developing the skills of this individual, right? So think about a, a geek creating a startup and then, you know, becoming a CEO of a huge global organization. Another way of looking at it could be that um, a true leader doesn't really care about you know, the title and, and maybe they don't need to become a CEO. Maybe they're absolutely fine with appointing a person who's their COO, as we've seen with Facebook, for instance, and Charles Sandberg uh, taking that, that helm, or with Google with the, uh, with the leadership transitions there as well. So, uh, you know, once again, it's either you trying to be a leader throughout the entire life cycle of the organization, leader and the CEO, or perhaps allowing others to take the take the, the helm. Mm. 
And in, in the context of like working together, is there a way in which leadership can be dispersed amongst a group, or is it often better to have that individual in charge? Do you think, John? Well, there there is going to be leadership dispersed without the group. No. No person, no one individual can handle and manage everything that's happening at a growing company. Oh, okay, if we have a tiny company and it's you and me, well, maybe if you went away, I could still handle it. But beyond that, you know, you're going to take, you have to decentralize command. You have to let subordinate leaders step up and lead their part of the organization. Like I said, if you've got a, 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 a sales leader and I'm the CEO, I'm not going to try and direct everything that that sales leader does because if I did that, then I wouldn't be able to also guide the direction that the, the technical developers are going in. And if I was getting in the weeds all the time with them, then I wouldn't be able to pay attention to the finances that are going on. So I can't dive too deeply into any one category as the overall leader because then I'm trying to micromanage things and, I, and, I, and no human has the cognitive capacity to just manage a large company by themselves. That's why you have subordinate leadership. That's why you use decentralized command so that the, the whole team can work together and lead together towards a common goal. And that's the critical part is everyone with decentralized command, everybody has to understand what the mission is. They have to understand what the goal is. They have to understand what the end state is. They have to understand the parameters that they're working with to get this mission done. They have to understand the overriding values that the company has. Those are the things that a good solid leader will make sure and ensure that every individual on the team has, every subordinate leader on the team has. And that way they're always, always working together towards a common goal. True, true. So uh, in your book, uh, Extreme Ownership, you talk a bit about the fog of war and the chaos and the mayhem that ensues in combat and how that plays a role in defining the qualities that are necessary for a leader. How does the sort of unforeseeable, disruptive nature of technology play a role in affecting the qualities for leadership in that industry? Well, it's it's a very real thing, the fog of war. And there's there's like a literal fog of war, which is smoke and it's dust. And there's noise that blocks out other sounds. I mean, there's a literal fog of war and then there's a figurative fog of war, which is you don't know what the enemy is doing. You don't even really know sometimes what friendly forces are doing because friendly forces are moving about around the battlefield and you're, you're not getting the immediate update all the time. And so these things are you, you don't always, you, you can't know everything 100%. And that's the exact same thing in the business world, not just technology, any business world. I mean, how much control do you have over the market? Yeah, sure, we can, we can look to try and predict the market, but we can only do it with a certain amount of accuracy. How much control do you have over what your competitors are doing? You have very limited control over what your competitors are doing. How, what about just nature? I mean, there's businesses that get crushed by a, a catastrophic mm. natural event that happens. Yeah. And so there's things that you aren't going to be able to control, things that you aren't going to be able to understand. And, and really with the fog of war, it's specifically about not having the 100% clear picture all the time. And what you have to do as a leader is you have to get to a point where you feel comfortable making decisions Knowing that you might be wrong, knowing that you you could be wrong and the information that's coming in could be wrong, but you're comfortable making decisions and moving forward, even though you don't have the the most 100% solid information imaginable. So I, I really love the, the, the fog of war metaphor for the business world, because you know what we're also seeing there is that often you don't even know who your enemies are. 
right? And that's that's the interesting part in business. We sometimes ask organizations, we, we ask them, hey, what industry are you in? And they give us a very precise answer. And then we dig deeper, turns out that there's a few other industries where they actually have competitors, so they could they could enter them, right? You know, is, is a particular, is a, you know, is Uber a, a transportation company, just that, or maybe there's something else, right? Maybe in they're in food delivery, obviously, you know, they have services mm -hmm. there as well, right? So suddenly we're looking at, uh, at completely different industries and that, that fog of war is a very powerful metaphor. The Digital Week is brought to you by the Chair in Digital Economy. The CDE would like to thank its partners, PwC, QUT, Brisbane Marketing and the Queensland Government. The Chair in Digital Economy, navigating the future. So I'm sure, Jocko, you've heard from some executives that you talk to uh, about the concept of extreme ownership, uh, that they might find it analogous to sort of falling on their own sword. Uh, how do you convince them that taking responsibility will impress their, the people that they're accountable to and that they'll have an opportunity to try again and redouble their efforts as opposed to simply being let go? Well, that's something I usually play a game with the individual that I'm talking to. It's called, who do you want working for you? That, that's the game. It's who do you want working for you? So if you two are working for me, so I got, I got Ollie and I got Merrick and you two are working for me and you do a project together and the project doesn't, doesn't succeed, it's a failure. And you come in to talk to me, let's say, let's say Ollie, you come in to talk to me first and you say, well, you know, Jocko, the, the project failed for a bunch of reasons. Number one, we didn't have the support that we needed. Number two, you know what? We didn't get the, the other people that owed us these, these pieces of the project. They didn't do their job. Plus, the direction wasn't that good. Plus, we had that bad snowstorm. And well, I guess you don't get those in Australia, but we, we had a typhoon hit and we missed some days of work. And that's another reason why we were late. And, and so those are the reasons that, that we failed the project. So, so basically what you just did is come into my office, even though you two are running the project and you told me that the, the, the project failed, but it wasn't your fault. It was the typhoon. It was the other people. It was the, it was the, all these other problems is why you failed. Now Merrick comes into the office and he comes in and he says, Hey Jocko, I, first of all, I want to say, I'm sorry that this project failed. I know I let you down. And here's some, here's some mistakes that I made. Number one, I had no contingency planning for any sort of weather. I, I know that we live in a place where we get hit with bad storms and I failed to come up with a, plan, a contingency plan for that. Number two, I didn't do a good enough job driving the other people that we were relying on to give us their deliverables into on time. Next time, I'm gonna get much more, I'm gonna become a micromanager next time to make sure that they get their parts of the projects done. So I apologize that we didn't get done what we need to get done, but those are the things I'm gonna fix so next time we can succeed. Now, it's a real simple question, but but that it makes it so obvious yeah. of, of who you would rather have working for you. Yeah. You'd rather have someone working for you that when, when there's a problem, instead of blaming the problem on other people, they step up and they say, hey, here's the problem, here's the mistake I made to end up with that problem, and here's exactly what I'm going to do to fix it. And, and Jocko, you've seen people admitting failure and then growing, right? Going oh. going up in ranks, and so that's, because that's, that's the paradox of it, right? N not only have I seen people admitting failure and going up in ranks, 
Equally important, I've seen people denying failure and not taking ownership and getting fired. As a matter of fact, when I was in the SEAL teams and I was running training, the the surest way to start going on the downhill path was to come in and say, hey, we failed this mission and I'm the boss, but it wasn't my fault. It was my subordinate leader's fault. It was the support assets fault. It was the weather's fault. Like all those people that you're blaming or things that you're blaming, uh, they don't matter. You're the leader. You're in charge. Take ownership. Solve the problems. Sure, sure. So we had a, uh, a recent news story here. Jock, I'm not sure if you heard about this, but we had a great deal of classified government documents recently discovered in an old filing cabinet, and they were delivered to the press. Our Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has stated that heads will roll uh, for this blunder, even though it was recently revealed that documents came from the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. What do you see as the context for extreme ownership in the political domain, particularly as it relates to the mishandling of sensitive government information? Well, you can't mishandle sensitive government information. And someone made a serious mistake. And yeah, there should actually be, there, there should absolutely be someone that has the courage and integrity to step up and say, you know what, this was my fault. And here's, you know, I'm either resigning or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. There's a classic case of, uh, in America, there's a, an incident that happened in the 60s, the Bay of Pigs. It was an, it was an invasion of Cuba that was attempted and it was an utter failure. And John F. Kennedy got on the news and, 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 and said, this was my fault. And his ratings didn't go down. They actually went up. They actually went up. And so again, it's another example of, taking ownership. And so in this particular case, yeah, someone's going to take ownership and, and the whole world's watching, or the whole country's watching and the whole country's going to know when they see that, whether the person is taking ownership or whether they're blaming the next person down the chain of command. True. Merrick, uh, in an analysis written by you and Dr. Paula Dudson and Peter Townsend for the conversation, uh, where you commented on the document leak, uh, you go as far as suggesting that blaming an individual or any individual is not the solution. Why is this? So, look, you have to take ownership, and uh, and what Joko just say just said is extremely important. What we're also seeing is that this particular case is an opportunity to look at the entire governance process around classified documents and perhaps look at an opportunity of improving it, because most likely, and that's that's what we're seeing, most likely the governance process, the processes around um, uh, handling classified documents were either not clear or not followed or whatever else the issue was. But there is an opportunity to look, to look at, into it and, and improving it. So we, in this particular article, we, we shared our approach uh, that we called compliant by design where any document is uh, immediately analyzed whenever it's created and then uh, assessed by you know, a software agent, which is a bit similar to an antivirus that just works behind the scenes and looks at every single email, every single conversation that you might have in the digital format, and then helps individuals with that, right? So ownership is extremely, extremely important, but I also believe that the next steps are just as important. So what do we do with it? How do we improve? How do we avoid a situation like that in the future? Well, I'm going to take what you're saying actually one step further. Mm. And and this is what makes it very interesting because you are correct. Mm. But what makes it even more practical is that if we have a culture 
in our, in our team where we all know that we are going to hold ourselves accountable, that we are going to take responsibility when something goes wrong, then what that does is it actually preempts these incidents from happening. Mm. Because someone, if they took ownership, you know, a year ago and whoever took over that job said, you know what, we got some, we got some possibilities here of leaking information and I'm the person in charge of this. And if information gets leaked, I'm the one that's responsible for it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come up with a new system and we're going to start working through it. So when you have a team where people take ownership, well, you solve problems. You end up solving problems before they happen because you realize that if 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 a problem does occur, it's you're the one that's gonna gonna suffer the blame. If I'm saying, hey, you know what? If if one of my guys loses a piece of classified document, no big deal. I'll blame them. Mm. Right? What's my attitude? My attitude is okay. You know, I hope it doesn't happen. But worst case scenario, you know, Ollie loses a piece of classified information. Guess what? I'll just fire him and I'll be okay. But if my attitude is, you know what? If Ollie loses a piece of classified information, that's actually my fault. It's my fault. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be proactive into putting systems into place. So that will not be the case. So you're right. We, it, it does cause a review, but it causes a review after the fact. Mm. What we want to do is if people have an attitude of taking ownership of things, the, what you're talking about will occur before before a negative incident takes place. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've been developing this framework called the proactive organization. And it sort of, we work with governments and companies to sort of advise them on how they can be more proactive and less reactive. Uh, given your experience as a, a Navy SEAL, what do you see as the downside of being reactive as opposed to being uh Proactive. Well, reactive is, is, is a horrible way to exist. And, and actually, in my terminology, since I was a warfighter, I don't say proactive usually. I say default aggressive. That's got to be your mindset. So it's, it's the same thing, though. Mm-hmm. Default aggressive, I think we all have to admit, sounds a lot cooler yeah. than proactive. <laughs> <laughs> so you have, to be, you have to be aggressive. That's the way you've got to go out. And when, when I talk about being aggressive, I don't talk about being aggressive towards your people, obviously. I'm not talking about being aggressive towards your team, but I'm talking about being aggressive towards solving problems. I talk about being aggressive towards achieving your goals. And so that's the same thing as, as, as opposed to being reactive. And I'll tell you, if you let the enemy dictate what is going to happen on the battlefield, you're giving them the upper hand. Absolutely. If you get aggressive and you maneuver before they do, you will have the upper hand. And that's the way you need to do, you know, in any in any situation. And, and absolutely, in the government, that would be a, a smart way to go about things. Just like we we just discussed the case of being being aggressive in mitigating the possibilities for the loss of classified material. Excellent. I, I'm just a bit afraid that our government partners would not prefer to be called default aggressive. Government. Well, no, absolutely. Uh, but you're right. That's that's the mindset, right? Really setting the stage before someone else sets it. You have to choose your words, you know, to fit mm. the audience. And that's I think right. that, I think the citizens of Australia would be much more comfortable with a proactive government <laughs> rather than a default aggressive one. True, true. But uh, but let me ask you this: Would you want your Navy SEALs to be proactive, or would you want them to be default aggressive? That's right. There, default therein lies the answer. <laughs> That's right. So, Jogo, what's been your favorite thing about visiting Australia? Well, so far, it's been re- it's been really interesting to see and work with the MIT group uh, here at, at at QUT, and to see the things that they're going through to to work with them, to see them develop as leaders. I mean, even in a couple days, you can see the impact. You can see the lights in their in their brains igniting as they realize number one how important leadership is, and number two the actual things that they can do to become better leaders. And that's always a powerful thing to see, and it's very gratifying. 
Sure. Well, uh, well, Jack, it's been an incredible pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, we wish you all the best for the rest of your time here in Brisbane. Thanks for having me on. That's it for this week on the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Chair Digiconomy and visit our website at chairdigitaleconomy.com.au. I'm Oliver Bolton. See you next time.